0: Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1, as we read verses 12 through 17. Hear now the word of God. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of all ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's ask him to do so. Heavenly Father, would you teach us this morning, even from the experience of the Apostle Paul, that you are a God who saves sinners, even the worst. Help us to see your grace so that we might never despair as we look to Jesus. Give us your spirit so that we not only hear your word, but so that we love and treasure it and the Savior. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite stories about the rebuilding of Jerusalem takes place in Nehemiah chapter 4. God's people have returned to the city. They are rebuilding the walls of the city. But while they're rebuilding these walls, they have a very dangerous job because they are under threat. And so, because they're under threat, they are armed. And this is what Nehemiah says. This is how Nehemiah describes the rebuilding effort of the wall. It says, Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon in the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. That's from Nehemiah 4.17. In a sense, this is an illustration of the church. I love reading the passage because it just seems like such a picture of the church. Because because in the church, there is construction and there is defense going on always. Um, They have to happen at the same time. You can never have just one. If you have just one, you're going to have an imbalanced church. If you have a church that's just dedicated to defense, and all you ever hear from the pulpit is arguing about false teaching somewhere, and that's all you hear about. What are you going to have? You're going to have a naturally negative church that knows what it is opposed to and struggles to know what it's for. At the same time, if all you have is a positive church that is not seeking to deal with error as it rises up, you're also going to have an imbalanced, anemic church. And so what Paul seems to be doing here in this letter with Timothy is he's being positive, he's being constructive, but he's also showing Timothy that he needs to defensively be dealing with all of these errors that are going on. And so he needs to have this sword at his side, even as he's laboring to feed and care for and build up this church, right? You have these these opponents, they have misused the law. They, they have to be answered, right? If they don't, then the walls of the church are going to be open. The walls of the church are going to be vulnerable and the enemy can just pour in. So the primary reason this, this letter is written to Timothy is he's serving this church in, in Ephesus and he needs to do these two things at once. He needs to repel the false teachers and he needs to answer them with the gospel. And at the same time, he needs to build up the church and appoint elders so that this church is going to be self-sufficient, so that it'll be self-sustaining. And then we come to this passage. When I was first preparing this sermon, I was sort of under the impression that what Paul does here is he takes a detour. He changes course. Uh, Maybe what he's doing here is he's indulging in some kind of worshipful aside. That's actually how I first approached this. I thought, well, I'm going to tell the congregation that he's not continuing an argument, I'm going to tell everybody that Paul is actually just taking sort of a detour for a moment here because he just can't help himself. And eventually, I decided that that was wrong. Uh, as As I was remembering the overall point of the letter and as I'm thinking about this problem of these false teachers, I began to see what Paul is actually doing here and how it fits into what he's been doing so far. Because what Paul is doing is... He is not taking a detour. He is remembering God's grace to him, and he's remembering his need for grace. And here's how that fits with the mission of this letter, the purpose of this letter. Remembering the way that God saved Paul shows how different he is from the false teachers. He is a contrast to these false teachers. Now, now Paul isn't special in one sense, right? He's just another example of a sinner who's saved by grace, he's like exhibit A that the false teachers are wrong. That's what he is. See, those ceremonies that the false teachers are leaning on can't do anything to wash away a shameful past like Paul carries with him. Um, And so we need something that's greater than the false teachers have on offer. Because those things wouldn't suffice for Paul, they won't suffice for us. So for the false teachers, right, extra works of the law, Uh, extra law keeping, uh, inventive food laws and ceremonies that go above and beyond what God has has given to his people. Um, In their way of thinking, those things all contribute to our salvation. And and Paul, though, lives in in that world. And and what does he say? He says, I live there and I found no life there. I found no hope there. I found no grace there. And so so he says, instead, he is not like these false teachers because Christians live by grace alone. We're not living by works. We can't live by works. If Paul was graded on works, he's already listed his works here, and his works are bad. And so if, if, if works were how someone got saved, someone like Paul would be in big trouble because he has a lot to be ashamed of, because he has a lot to repent of. And he can't wash himself. Now, the gospel is good news, but it is good news for sinners. It's not good news for good people because good people don't need this news. Jesus says he came for the sick. He didn't come for those who are well. And what Paul does is he shines a spotlight on himself this morning in order to make this point that he is one of the sick people. So we can break down how Paul does this with three points this morning, with Paul's history, Christ's purpose, and God's glory. These are the three steps that we're going to take through this passage, right? Paul's story might be unique, right? We remember Paul's story. We remember what kind of a man he was before. Uh, We find his story to be utterly remarkable because he persecuted Christians. And in that sense, he feels extreme to us. But he's actually not exceptional. He is just another example of a sinner who is saved by grace. And so because of that, Paul says, take a look at me. Look what God has done for me. Look to the past to see God's grace and realize that you need that grace too. So first this morning, we have Paul's history. Now, he's not just giving us history for history's sake. Paul doesn't just think, well, these people need to know me better. That's not the reason why he says what he says here. Paul frames what he says here as an opportunity for thanksgiving even as he makes the argument. So in verses 12 to 14, he pours out this gratitude that God would even use him at all in spite of his list of personal sins. Listen to the things he says about himself in verse 13. He says, formerly, this isn't him anymore. This is not his identity. This is not who he is. But he says, formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. If you've read the book of Acts, then you know what kind of man Paul was. His plan was to imprison Christians, to, to suppress the church. He approved of the murder of Stephen. This was not a good man. This was not somebody that you would want to be. This isn't somebody that you look back and go, man, I really wish I could have those three things To put on my record. Um, Later on, he wasn't proud of who he was. He would look back, and uh, perhaps the scribes and the Pharisees would have been impressed with his lifestyle. But he was on a dark path, and and he was he was walking it for a while before Jesus saved him. Now, what Paul does here is almost the opposite of what he does in Philippians. I think this is interesting. Contrast how he approaches the Philippians. In Philippians, what does he do? He lists all of his merits. He lists all the good things that he did. He listed all the things that might impress somebody about him. All of his good deeds. All of his spiritual successes. And and why did he do that? He did that to show that his good works were worthless to justify. He says, look at all this stuff that you could do. Look at all the things that you could accumulate for yourself. That you could perhaps brag about. And he says, it's all garbage to me. None of it's worth anything. But then... So there he's extolling the worthlessness of good works. And then over here, he does something very different. He lists his demerits. He lists the things about himself that he is the most ashamed. Literally, you could not think of three worse things to say about a person. Blasphemy, right? To, to somebody who knows the Lord and loves the Lord, the idea of blaspheming is, is disgusting. It's, it's horrifying. To be a persecutor, the, the worst thing that you could imagine about somebody. To be an insolent opponent, not just I wasn't a Christian, I was indifferent to Christianity, but he's saying I'm, I was actively opposed to Christianity. Right? He is, he is presenting to them the three most shameful things that he can think of about himself. Imagine standing in front of a church and saying the three things in your life that you are the most deeply ashamed of from your past. That's what he does, he doesn't brag. Instead, he does whatever the opposite of bragging is, right? That's, that's what this is. And so here's the, the, the importance of this. He says he does this so that we can see the impotence of the false teachers and their so-called gospel. Uh, if his opponents are right, and people should be living by these ceremonies, and they should be living by these excessive laws, how does that speak good, good news to someone with as much badness in their past as Paul? How is that good news to Paul? Be a good man. Do the right thing. Do do what God requires of you, Paul. And Paul says, how does that wash away my blasphemies? How does that wash away my persecution? How does that wash away all of the filth and the things that I am truly ashamed of about myself? See, he marches himself out and he says justification by good works and ceremonies might be good news to a good person if you could find him. Someone who follows all the rules, but what about someone like me? I'm the worst of the worst. Speak to me a gospel that is good news to someone like that. I generally am not in favor of telling Christians to focus on themselves. That, is, that tends to not be my Approach to Christian spirituality. I do not think that that is a very healthy way to live. By thinking about yourself, uh, however, Paul still sees some value in talking about his own history. He sees some value in looking back, doesn't he? I think I think that we should, as well, at least to some degree, we should we should be willing to look back with some willingness and with some caveats and some caution. See, here's what I think. I think remembering what God has done within us has this profound ability to remind us of the work that he has done and that we might be tempted to forget and that we might be tempted to overlook. You get far enough along in the Christian life, you start to feel really discouraged about yourself, and you just think, I've never grown. You think, I feel just as bad as I did on day one of the Christian life. And uh, C.S. Lewis used to say this. He used to say sometimes that you look at someone And you'd say, how could that person be a Christian? You just look at somebody, you go, he's so disappointing, he's so grumpy, he sinned against me recently, he has a a negative disposition. This guy always seems angry. I don't even remember where Lewis talks about this, but it impressed itself upon me pretty early on. And Lewis, says, Lewis makes this point. He says, you look at that person and you think, how could he be a Christian? And yet Lewis's point that he makes is, he says, the grace of God may be, have been at work in this person's life and you just don't appreciate it. You don't see it, right? This person's on the slow path of sanctification. Uh, and this is true. We usually are not as patient or appreciative of what God is doing in other people's lives the way we are about ourselves. We tend to look at ourselves and maybe, maybe we have an attitude about ourselves that say, well, I can really see how God has been changing me, but I can't see how he's doing anything in that person over there. And it's because we have no patience with them and we're willing to give ourselves all the patience in the world. Someone comes to us with a sin and we say, well, you don't, you don't understand. I'm on the slow path of sanctification. (laughs) Uh, And then we see somebody on the slow path of sanctification and we go, why are they so far behind by now? Uh, and Lewis says this, though. He says, he says you know, you, you don't know the kind of person they would have been if not for Jesus. You don't know who you would be looking at instead of the person who's in front of you, right? If not for God's grace, they would have been ten times the devil that they are. And I feel like I relate to this. I feel like I relate to this a lot. I feel like that person who is genuine, genuinely a disappointing Christian. Um. And I'm not, I don't, I don't mean that just in a, well, he's the preacher, he's supposed to say that. I mean, I, I really, I don't feel like I'm good at doing a lot of spiritual things that I'm supposed to be good at. Uh, I'm not good at focusing on certain specialties. I see other Christians who who pray better than me and it blows me away and it, and it discourages me about myself sometimes. Or, or I see other Christians that I hear about their devotional patterns and I think, why can't I be more disciplined? And I just feel like a disappointing christian i can see that i don't love others the way that i should i tend towards laziness i tend towards self-love and i see others who just serve and they just pour themselves out for other people and they almost seem to do it impulsively and 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 i'm impatient with other people and i feel like the fruits of the spirit are so dull in my own life I love engaging in certain kinds of of service, maybe, but I feel like I'm terrible about stepping outside of my comfort zone. These feel like things a Christian shouldn't say about themselves. And they all feel like the makings of a terribly disappointing Christian. Every now and then, though, I'm reminded who I used to be before I knew Jesus, Um. Some people have the luxury of being able to do this. Some don't. If you're a covenant child, you've grown up in the church. You've always trusted in Jesus. You don't remember a day when you didn't believe in Jesus. You may not have this luxury. But, but some of us became believers at a certain point in our lives. And I, I sometimes am reminded of the plans that I had as a young man for my life. The things that I wanted for myself. Uh, in my imagination, and this is only in my imagine, their, their, in, uh, imagination, imagination, I don't think there are actually parallel dimensions out there. But in my imagination, there is this parallel dimension out there where Adam Parker grew up, uh, went off to college, became a video game designer to work for Nintendo. That's what I wanted when I was 15. I'm going to stick with this vision. Uh, I wanted to work for Nintendo. I wanted to go to Seattle and learn to make video games. Uh, in my imagination, I, a wildly successful individual with a great career path. But if that Adam had had his way, he would also have continued in his atheism. He would not have cared about the people of God, not cared about the church, wouldn't have uh, cared at all about Christianity, except perhaps in being active in opposing Christianity and opposing God. I have no doubt on the path that I was on. I would have left high school. I would have left the confines of my Christian alcove that I was hiding out in. And I would have become an evangelist against the Lord. And I would have spread some awful self-centered message probably to the world because I still think I would have had a preacher in me somewhere. Just a bad preacher. I could be a bad preacher, but not that bad. Um, I I think that in that parallel dimension, Adam Parker would have hurt a lot of people and he would not have had a framework for how to address it. Just a trail of hurt people with no compulsion to even apologize or make amends, right? So Sometimes I'm reminded of that person. And I'm, and I'm reminded that I may be a disappointment, but I can also see that I am not that man. I am not that man that I was set to become. And I think there's a value in remembering that. And maybe there's going to be a value for you in remembering who you would have been apart from the grace of God. Um, yes, Adam in 2021 feels like a disappointment compared to Jesus. And compared to other Christians, right? People all over this room love and give and sacrifice in a way that makes me feel ashamed of myself. I have a long way to go as a Christian. And yet, I know that I can say with Paul that I received mercy and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. And every Christian in this room can say that. So it is very important for us to occasionally remember who we were, contrast it with who we are, what we love and what we want now versus what we loved and what we wanted before Jesus. Who God says we are in Christ and who God says we would be outside of Christ. It's important for us to look back. Paul says there's a blessing in looking back at his own history. Perhaps for some of you, you could find encouragement by doing the same. Uh, not to be nostalgic, not to indulge in the past, but in order to be grateful for what God has been doing in your life and what He has done in your life. That's what Paul does here. He doesn't indulge in nostalgia. He gives, he indulges in thanksgiving. If anything, he he remembers that so that we can give thanks. Now, second, Paul takes takes us from his own history of sin, his own history of blasphemy, to a far far greater, far more joyful message. And that is Christ's purpose for him. So look at verses 15 and 16 now. He says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Some people think Paul is indulging in hyperbole here, calling himself the worst. Surely Paul doesn't think that. Surely Paul thinks somebody else worse than him existed. I don't really think so. I think that deep down in his soul, Paul really believed there can't be anyone worse than me. He really thought this way about himself. I can't imagine someone who is more far gone than I was, right? I don't think this is mock humility. We already saw the three things he said about himself, these three shameful things. There are not three things he could think of that would be worse to add to that list that he would be more ashamed of. See, if you're a person who's burdened by your own past, burdened by your own sin, please remember this man... Who is writing this letter for us to read? He would say this to you. I think he would say this to you from the bottom of his heart All sin is bad, but no one's been better at this bad thing than me. I am the best sinner and the worst sinner. And yet he could say in almost the same breath The good news isn't something else about me. The good news is not, let me tell you something else about Paul. He doesn't say, you missed something great about yourself. And it will really lift up your spirits. Uh, He doesn't have this positive message about you to convey to you. Uh, Somebody passed along to me an item on Amazon that I wish I didn't know existed. It's called the Joel box. And if you push a button, Joel Osteen will speak an inspirational saying for you about yourself today. And every time you push the button, you'll get a different positive saying about you, something affirming about you. You get your daily affirmation by pushing the affirmation button. <laughs> Paul doesn't do that, right? Paul's, Paul's answer to the bad news is not more good things about you, right? He's not, he doesn't go, let me tell you something that's great about you, though. Instead, he doesn't say anything about himself to lift himself up from this low, dark place that he is. You just need to see your potential, Paul. See, because the, the gospel isn't a message about you. The gospel is not, there's not good news in here. You keep mining the depths of what you find in here. You're not going to find that diamond in the rough, you're not going to find that hidden nugget, something beautiful here that just makes everything great. The message of the gospel is something that points way outside of us to the Savior. So the gospel is a message about the Savior outside of us. Our hope is in him. It is is him. It comes from outside, not from in here. And so his answer to this dilemma of sin and burden is Jesus Christ came into the world that's the phrase he uses. Jesus Christ came into the world. He broke in. He came from outside. Whatever the savior is that we needed, he he wasn't didn't come from in here. He came from without. We're getting into this season. We're going to be reflecting upon the incarnation and that's one of these immense truths that's really amazing is we were not suitable. There was no one suitable among us. And so he had to come into the world. He existed before the world. He was with the Father, he was with the Spirit, he existed, and then he came. He wasn't here and then he was here. He took on flesh. He walked among us and he came for this purpose according to verse 15, he came into the world to save sinners. There's your purpose. You want to know why Jesus came? To save sinners. Now again, Think of these opponents that Paul is dealing with. Think of these opponents that Timothy has to deal with. They want to make good people. They want to make law keepers. They want people who go above and beyond the law, in fact. They want to keep laws that aren't even in the law. And Paul says, Jesus came for sinners, not for these good, clean folks. It's confession time, says Paul. If... If God saves good people, then I'm damned. If God is scouring the earth looking for law keepers, then I might as well throw in the towel because I won't be one of them. Instead, Paul says, God saves sinners. God saves bad people. God saves disappointments. God rescues the people who flee to the one who came into the world to save sinners. That's who God rescues. Paul wants us to know, he wants us to know, I need this. He's speaking personally. He's speaking from his own experience. He's not speaking as an outsider. He says, without this, it's all over. Don't listen to the poison these false teachers bring. Don't listen to the lies your own heart may even tell you. I'm a pretty good person. Don't do it. If they tell you that your works do something to bring you peace with God, then run the other way because their message can't save a sinner. And you are one of them. See, ultimately, their approach ends with a finger pointing not to Jesus, but to yourself. they might as well put the noose around the neck for you, right? The message where your hope is in you is a message of death. Why did God do this for Paul? Why, Why save such a wretch? What's his motivation? What moves God? What motivates him? Why rescue someone like him? Couldn't he just as well have condemned Paul, sent him to hell, so that we could know just how holy God is? Couldn't God glorify himself that way? By giving a persecutor of the church exactly what he deserves, so that we could see how ugly sin is and how just God is. Couldn't he do that? Yes, he could. He could have. And he would have been a good judge to send Paul to hell apart from Christ. And yet, instead, Paul says, God decided to do something else, to make a different kind of example of Paul, an example of his compassion. Not of his justice. Well, you see his justice in Christ, but you see his compassion when you look at Paul. Look at verse 16. He says, But I received mercy for this reason. What moves God? Why give him mercy? Why not give him what he deserves? He says, for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So so he's saying, in essence, that God planned for Paul to be a canvas upon which God would display the artwork of his grace. Paul is the canvas, and the resulting image says, behold, the grace of God. Look at Paul. He uses an argument from the greater to the lesser here. Uh, Paul wants each and every person who reads this letter to know that if you struggle to believe that you could be a friend of God, Paul says, trust me, apart from Christ, I could never believe it about myself. However bad you think you are, I have been to the bottom, and yet God's hand reached all the way down. So, our badness and our sin is not an obstacle to God's grace. In fact, Paul says God used it to show just how patient and gracious and kind He is. You feel guilty for your sin. Not just your sin from, from weeks ago or from years ago or decades ago, but do you feel guilty for your sin right now? you feel guilty for your present sin? Maybe you sinned this morning and you came in here not feeling so great today. Maybe something from even just this week burdens you. Paul says, he showed grace to me. He showed grace to me. Paul says, I stand in amazement, and and, and so so I know he will show grace to you. The grace of our Lord overflowed to me, and that means his grace can wash over anyone. And we live and walk every day in that, not just the first day of the Christian life that we believe, but every day. So what we do is we have a lifestyle, we have a habit where we keep going back to him. And our lifestyle of repentance exists because the grace keeps flowing and it doesn't stop the sight of heaven. That is not the message of these people who are trying to destroy the church in Ephesus. They're they're very well meaning. I think they are. They they think they're upholding the honor of God. They think this is their way of saying that God's law still matters. And yet all they're doing is preaching a gospel that can't save a sinner. They, they've removed all of the life from the gospel, right? They, their message is keep doing. Keep being good. Don't just keep the law from the heart, but do these new ceremonies. Don't eat meat. Celebrate these religious days that God never invented. Uh, Do this, do this, do this. And they just pile up the burdens. And Jesus talks about these kind of people. He says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. This is a human instinct. Get practical. Let's do. Let's make rules. They promise good results if everybody does them. And the good news Jesus preached was different. What does he say instead? He says, Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you for, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a difference! What a change. See, he comes for the sick. He doesn't come for the well. He lifts the burdens off. He doesn't pile them on. He is a kind Savior who will rescue even the worst of the worst. Has your sin brought you low? Has God made you feel in your soul the truth that maybe you are a Christian, but you are a disappointing Christian? Be willing to say it. I am a disappointing Christian. Or maybe... Maybe he's made you feel something even more important. Maybe he's made you to feel that you've never really rested on Jesus alone. Right? It, it's possible to, to rest upon your good theology. It's possible to rest upon your religious upbringing. It's possible to rest upon your baptism. It's possible to rest upon the fact that I'm a communing member. The session heard my profession of faith. Uh, they said that I am a believer in Jesus as far as they can tell, and that's good enough for me. Maybe you're a commuting member and you rest upon that. It's possible to be a commuting member who realizes that you've had your eyes on yourself all this time. As long as there is breath in your lungs, it is not too late. What does Paul say in another place? He says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Jesus says, now, come to me and I will give you rest. Now believe it or not, the salvation of someone like Paul is really incredible but even it serves a larger purpose and this is a purpose that's true of all of us of course and that's this it's our third point this morning there's a reason why god saves sinners and and paul strikes that exact tone in verse 17 and that is our third point which is this god's glory it's the thing that drives all of this it's it's the reason why he does everything here right paul paul has just told us what god did for him And he just told us of the overflowing grace of Jesus. He told us about the seriousness and severity of sin and just how unworthy sinners are of knowing the Savior. And yet he said in verse 16 that God saved him in order to what? Display his perfect patience. Display. In other words, Paul is is like a painting. And if you were to hang a painting of Paul on the wall... Then underneath the painting, the title of the painting would be The Patience of God. The Patience of God. And they would just be a picture of Paul. You want to know how patient God is? Look at me, he says. And there's a a right response to this sort of beautiful and and glorious display. The response is a response of, of doxology. That means praise. The right way to respond to something as beautiful as the salvation of a sinner is to praise the God who saves. Worship, doxology. What else can you do when something that remarkable is done? Well, he, he, gets, he gets to it in verse 17. What does he say? You could spend all day on this. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Just pours out of him. Salvation, as wonderful it is, is not an end in itself. It, it exists for a reason. It serves a purpose. It serves the purpose of, the, of bringing glory to the one who does the saving. So why would, why would it do that? Why would it bring glory to the one who saves? Because these things show us something of God. They show us something of the God who could do this. It shows us something of the God who would do this, who could plan this, who could accomplish this, right? These things reveal God to us and show us what he's really like. He's gracious. He's kind. He's full of mercy. He's also just. He never winks at our sin. Jesus bears our sin. There is not one sin in the universe that will go unanswered for. Every single evil that you can think, every single wickedness that you see in the news, the sort of persecutions, the sort of horrors that take place in this world, there is not one sin that will go unaccounted for. And he is still able to save someone who sins. That, that shows us something of the Creator. Creator. And the right response that you, that you see in scripture is, is that we see what God is like. And our hearts are supposed to be filled with admiration and worship and joy. To know that our creator is filled with such kindness toward poor, miserable people like us. Amen. When God saves a sinner, he's showing himself to us. He's showing us what he's like. Who is God? He is the one who in his infinite wisdom devised a way of salvation. He devised a way for a sinner to go free and for sin to always be punished. If it were left to you or me to come up with a way for those two truths to happen, we would not have invented this. We could not have invented it. We could not have dreamed it up. The wisest person in the world could have sat down and come up with some kind of plan, and it would not have been this. See, when we see God our Savior in Christ, we are right to be blown away by his wisdom and the plan of it all. It's like what Paul does in Romans 11. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. The salvation that Jesus gives tells us something about God. He's wise. He has knowledge deeper than we can ever know. He's kind. He's kind. How many people struggle with the thought that God doesn't like me? And yet what does he show us in Christ? That he is a kind God. He's a gracious God. Those are not small things to say about the Creator. And, and, Paul, and Paul sees himself as exhibit A. He, he's not the last exhibit, though, because this is our God. And he continues to be like this. He has continued to rescue people for millennia, people who didn't deserve rescue. He continues to show kindness to the unkind, grace, grace to the ungracious, mercy to the unmerciful. This is what our God is like. And so lift them up in your hearts. Rejoice in who he is. The grace of our Lord overflows for sinners like you and me. So the reason we know him, the more reason we have to worship and rejoice in him. Christian, this this is good news. All of it, from, from beginning to end. If you trust in Christ, then you are one of these exhibits. You are an exhibit of God's grace. And underneath the painting of you, it would say, the patience of God. If you don't trust in him yet, it is not too late. You've heard the invitation. Today is the day of salvation. So let's trust in Jesus and let's worship our God for his overflowing grace that saves. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we at once rejoice in the immense kindness that you show to people like us. But we also know that this message is one that we all need. May we throw ourselves upon your grace by trusting in Christ that we would know the true depths and heights of your love. And in response that we'd give you glory, that we would give you praise and honor and thanks. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.